Hi, I'm Adil Bandukwala. And I'm Kaushik Satish. And this is the Great Indian Marketing Show, where we go behind the scenes with top marketing leaders. We uncover not just what marketers do, but how. We have with us today a very special guest, Andy Raskin. Andy helps CEOs align their teams around strategic narratives. His clients today include CEOs at dozens of companies backed by top venture firms, including Anderson Horowitz, Sequoia Capital, and GV. Andy has also led strategic narrative training at Salesforce, Square, Dropbox, IBM, Uber, Yelp, VMware, and General Assembly. Andy's 2016 post titled The Greatest Sales Tech I've Ever Seen has nearly 3 million views and has been embraced worldwide as a foundational framework for company and product positioning. Prior to launching his strategic narrative practice, Andy held senior product and marketing roles at Skype, Mashery and 500 Friends. Andy also co-founded Cubiquity, a viral marketing analytics company which was acquired in 2001. His own stories have appeared on NPR's This American Life and All Things Considered, as well as in the New York Times, Wired and Gourmet. He holds an MBA from the Wharton School and a BS in Computer Science from Yale. Welcome to the Great Indian Marketing Show, Andy. Very excited to be talking to you today. Oh, great to be here. Thanks, Adil. And thanks, Kashik. Welcome, Andy. Andy, let's start off with understanding why should CEOs and founders care about having a strategic narrative? Can you give us some context on what's changed and why this is so important? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know if I could say why they should care. Uh, I could tell you kind of what they say when they come to me uh, for help with this. And and typically it's because they have come to the conclusion that the traditional approach to talking about the company isn't working for them. So that traditional approach is usually some form of, hey, there's a problem we solve. Hey, you have a problem, buyer. Uh, we have a solution, our product. I'm going to tell you about that. And then I'm going to tell you why it's better than all the other solutions. And I call this the bragging doctor. So you have a pain, I have a treatment, I'm going to tell you why it's better than all the other treatments. And especially, you know, starting, I'd say around five, 10 years ago, you know, this is the time when cloud infrastructure starts becoming prevalent coding frameworks like Rails. The time that it takes to go from idea to startup to company has accelerated so much that markets got really, really crowded. And so buyers are now bombarded by everyone making these claims. I think one of the things I hear most commonly from CEOs is, hey, all these competitors, they're saying the same thing we are, and they don't do what we do. Of course, that's their point of view, and probably their competitor would have the same point of view. But anyway, um, so they're looking for a different way to talk about the company and a, a different way of creating a presence in the world and the market. Understood. Andy, just doubling down on that, can you unpack for us what is a strategic narrative. And going beyond that also, what it isn't. Also, what is it really supposed to do for your business? 
Yeah. So let's start with the question of what it isn't. So what it isn't is a story about your company. The traditional messaging frameworks, you know, we're going to create a mission, vision. These are all very self-centered. We want to be the blah, blah, blah of the world. Uh, <laughs> we want to do this, right? Sometimes it's we want to help customers, but, you know, the customers are the object <laughs> and the subject of the story is us. It really starts with looking at how do you think that buyers buy? And I subscribe to this theory that buyers buy because of a story that's in their head. Uh, I call this story the operating narrative. So an operating narrative is a story that guides someone's decisions. So someone who's written a lot about this, uh, I don't know if you know this guy, uh, Venkatesh Rao. I once spoke to an Indian VC and I said, do you, do you know the work of Venkatesh Rao? He said, listen, there were like 25 Venkatesh Rao's in my high school. But this one, he's a prolific blogger. He writes a lot about this stuff. And he, he talks about this, how people make decisions because of this kind of story in our head as a kind of heuristic. And I think the traditional view is that people are comparing all the attributes and ranking them and kind of coming up with some bestness score. And this is why, you know, we have all of this bragging doctor stuff. But if it's this story in the head, then what we really have to do then is if the buyers are already buying and everything's going great, well, then that's fine. The story in their head is working for us. But if it's not, if they're not seeing urgency, which is, of course, usually the challenge for most teams, uh, especially as they, they get a little bit past the very, very early buyers, uh, then our challenge is to put a new operating narrative in their head. And this is what I call the strategic narrative, that the company is going to try to put a new narrative through which people are going to understand their world into the heads of buyers. Okay. Andy, I was very curious to understand if a CEO or a founder were to begin work on their strategic narrative, where do they really begin? Because going by a lot of your writing, it seems like it actually starts with a fundamental insight that a founder has or brings to the table. So I wanted to know if you were advising a CEO or a founder, where would you advise them to begin? Yeah, well, the core of any strategic narrative is what I call the change in the world. So if you think about any movie you've ever seen or any story you've ever read, usually there's some event that happens in the beginning that shakes up the world of the main character. So they've been kind of going on along fine and something happens that shakes them up. And this shakeup, it's not only a kind of problem. So one way of seeing this is just, oh, they have a problem they have to solve. But I think there's another way to look at it, which is that it's an event that causes them to question their worldview, question essentially their operating narrative. So in Star Wars, you know, Luke, he has this operating narrative of, hey, I'm going to be a complaining teenager <laughs> when he's when the movie starts. Right. And that's working for him. <laughs> OK. And then things change and this is no longer going to work for him. And he's going to have to embrace a new narrative that's you know, something around like caring about people or, you know, trust the force. <laughs> and in the very same way, the CEOs who are really great at a strategic narrative start with this shift. They're talking about how the world has changed for their buyer such that they're going to have to give up some old worldview and embrace some new one. The classic example is Mark Benioff in 2000 coming out and saying software is over. It's the end of software. 
course, he means software in the very strict sense of, of code that you're going to be owning and maintaining and licensing and paying to maintain every year. And there's this new worldview that you're going to have to embrace, which is in a name, the cloud. This is the starting point for every strategic narrative. And is there usually you know, a right time to think about it? Like, when do you suggest that companies and founders think about it? Do businesses need to be at a certain stage of market traction or maturity? What is the right time? You know, I've seen CEOs and founders attack this at so many different points. So I'll give you two different extremes. You know, one is David Cancel, the CEO of Drift. So David literally says like he founded Drift because he saw this shift in the world. Like he was looking, he actually was like, I think he had gotten a, some kind of blank check from, from HubSpot where he had been. And he went around basically looking like, what's a shift in the world? He, he didn't look for what's a problem. He like, what's a shift, right? So he's literally thinking about this as like the germ of the founding idea. And so he's thinking right at the beginning, right? And, and of course, if you can phrase it this way, it's really great, I think, for investors at the early stage, because when you're talking about a shift, you're making them smell opportunity. One of the big of course, objections or points of resistance for an early investor as well. Um, how come nobody else is doing this? And by saying there's a shift, you're saying, hey, things have changed. So now there's this you know, new opportunity, right? Uh, it's not just that, hey, we're a bunch of smarty pants who thought of this. At the other extreme, you have people like Drew Houston, the CEO of Dropbox, he founds Dropbox on this idea of, I think his founding story is that he was away from his desk and he needed his files and or he lost his, his USB drive on a bus or something and he wanted access to his files. And, you know, this is a tremendously successful company for many years. And then about a year ago, you see, now it's a public company and you see the public market say, hmm, you know, a company that's just about like where to put my files, well, that's not so sexy anymore. <laughs> and does Dropbox have a news story? And so he actually goes out in uh, around September, about a year ago, and tells this whole new narrative to the world about what Dropbox is going to be. And of course, there's CEOs who have you know gotten serious about attacking this at, at all points along that journey. I'd say most of the teams I work with tend to be in the kind of BC stage, but there's quite a bit of variation. Lately, a lot of CEOs, this weird trend, not weird, I guess, but this trend has been CEOs who are coming into an organization uh, new are using me to facilitate their team in defining the strategic narrative as a way to define their leadership. So all kinds of different points uh, along the way. Well, that was very interesting, especially the latter part. Andy, you obviously work with a lot of CEOs across different stages and sectors in helping build these narratives. Can you unpack for us what your process is like? Yeah. So uh, without boring you with all the details, um, I usually spend a couple of months with a team and the team is the CEO and I asked the CEO then to create a, a small team that's going to support the CEO in building this. And those are typically heads of sales, marketing, product. You guys, this is a show about marketers. 
I actually don't think of strategic narrative as a marketing thing. I think of it as a leadership thing. Though, of course, the marketer has a huge role to play in this work because after the CEO, the group and the people that are going to be distributing the story the most, my process is really aimed at balancing two things. One is having the CEO really be the author of this. I really believe that the CEO has to not only sign off on it or, you know, buy in, but literally be the author of it. That's not to say like I, you know, ask them to go off and write it themselves, but they're in the trenches with me one-on-one, like building it. At the same time, we want the team especially the key leaders of the team, to feel like this is theirs, to smell their scent on it and not reject it as something that, I don't know, the marketing team gave to them or the CEO did with some consultant and, you know, forced on them. So we want to balance those two things. And my process is really a, a back and forth between team as a group feedback and group and stuff and me and the CEO working individually back and forth till we get to something that's feeling really good. The other key thing about my process is what we're actually building. So we talk about this strategic narrative, like what are we really talking about? Because the traditional approach to company messaging is, aside from that different structure, is that we're going to put it in a place that the world doesn't see. We're going to put it in, I don't know, some positioning statement or positioning framework, fill in the blanks thing, like a spreadsheet or a presentation that's going to internal. And the idea is people are supposed to kind of go to that thing and it's going to be DNA of the messaging. We're going to go to it when we need to talk to a customer like to create a sales deck, we'll go pull messages from that thing or to create a web page, we'll pull messages from that thing. And I really found that that approach was played by a lot of problems. One of them was people would just forget to go back. <laughs> so it would live in marketing or wherever, at the CEO's desk, or and then somebody's trying to play cop to try to force everybody to use these words. The other thing is that those kinds of instruments the fill in the blanks or the positioning statement or mission statement, whatever, they're not narrative in nature. So they don't really give someone a sense of how to talk to somebody in a real live situation about stuff. So I thought very hard, like what would be the thing that would work better? And I came to the sales deck and in the engagements that I do, it's a little weird, right? Because I'm asking the CEO and the leadership team, sometimes at very big companies, to build the sales deck. This is something that's normally delegated a few levels down. I'm also asking marketing to essentially treat the sales deck as if it's the marketing messaging house, you know, like as if it's the guide to everything we're going to say. But I really believe in that because don't we want it to know that it's going to work in a customer conversation? And if it does, isn't that the story we want to be telling everywhere and supporting that story everywhere? There are a few cases, you know, when a company is really, really large, instead of literally the sales deck, we'll kind of do like a CEO keynote. That's kind of a a sales deck ish, but uh, always something that the world sees as the thing that's going to guide the team on, on what the narrative is. 
Got it. So you talked about Drift and you also talked about Dropbox. Would love to understand a little more from you in terms of maybe one or two examples of companies who you think have really nailed their narrative over the last year or two, which are companies that you've been super impressed by. Yeah. Well, the one I go back to a lot is the one I wrote about in that post is Wara. You know, we now live in a subscription economy. So used to be that we would sell things and we would, you know, the world, people wanted to transact with you. They wanted to buy things. Now they don't want to buy things. They want to sort of buy the, the benefits of those things without the hassles of owning them. So their whole company really is built on this story. And it's a story that's not about them. Right. That story is true, whether Zwara lives or dies. Um, it's always been the case. Right. Um, I think the company, you know, certainly in the B2B space that has just done this really well last couple of years is Gong. Uh, Gong, they're the story that their CEO uh, presented to the world a couple of years ago. Hey, used to be you could succeed in sales on opinions. <laughs> And now you can only succeed in sales if you have a view of reality. So they have this phrase, goodbye opinions, hello reality. And they call this revenue intelligence. They call this view of reality, this discipline of of having a view of reality, revenue intelligence. And what I love about it is you really do see that the whole company is talking about this all the time. So the CEO is talking about it. Udi, the, the CMO, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his last name, but uh, <laughs> sorry, Udi. It's now um, holiday season. So they did a series of videos that are all about like the gift of reality <laughs> to people who had been going on opinions. Just fascinating how they've just really embraced this story. And it's just incredibly paying off for them. I think they were going to be a successful company without that, but I think their valuation and growth prospects are much, much higher because of it. I think one thing founders, especially in early stages, may worry about is, you know, how broad or narrow do we go with our narrative, right? You know, particularly as products or markets evolve fast, you want to be in a position where your story continues to resonate and evolves, you know, with that. So is there a right way to go about that? Like, how do you strike that balance? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to answer that question without talking about a specific case. But of course, we're looking for something that's going to have legs. We don't want to be talking about something that's not going to be true in a few months. I wouldn't say that that's a challenge that I normally come up against, because the whole reason you founded the company is usually you're believing in some long-term opportunity. And that long-term opportunity is, is always based on some kind of shift. And so we're looking for one that will have some staying power. That said, you know, occasionally, certainly they may have to evolve. So let's take the example I gave earlier of Salesforce. You know, Mark Benioff isn't talking about the end of software anymore because that story kind of came true. It's it's kind of old news now. And so I've been really fascinated to watch every year his Dreamforce talks because every few years he shifts the story a little bit. So a couple of years ago, he started talking about, hey, we're now in the fourth industrial revolution. Last year, it was more about 
how everything is connected now. People want things to be connected. Of course, these themes are are influenced a little bit by the acquisitions that Salesforce made over the, over the, the previous year or so. And it gets harder as the company gets bigger because you're trying to come up with this narrative that's going to encompass, you know, all the different things that you do. But I think Benioff is an interesting example of a CEO who has evolved it every few years in a way that, you know, seems to be basically working. Absolutely. I want to just dig a little deeper on the operational part over here. Once you sort of aligned towards a narrative, uh, what does the go-to-market look like? You know, I know you mentioned that the sales tech is the place where you ideally start, but if you were to plan out the first, let's say, six to 12 months of your new narrative outreach, what would that plan look like or how would you work on that? Yeah, well, that then becomes, I think, the domain of the various functional leaders. So one of the reasons I start with the sales deck is because we want to see the first thing we want to know is even before we commit to it, like how is it going to play in sales? So first thing I want the team to, and I am part of this work, is we start using it in sales calls. This isn't to say like rolling it out to the whole team, but situations where we can really understand how it's working. So this means sales calls, investors making, doing investor calls, marketing people building. I usually have a market marketing teams build some asset. So it could be like the top of the website or, you know, some rough new version of the website. In some cases, it's like a webinar that's a little less salesy and more, you know, sort of educational, but kind of still makes the narrative the center of it. In some cases, CEOs are engaged in fundraising, so they're starting to use it in fundraising. So I want to see that it's working in real situations. And what we're really looking for here is a few things. One is, of course, to optimize it. We learn a lot from these initial uses of it. That piece that we thought was just super necessary and 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 going to be the best, like just going to make people drool over. Oh, that made them think of something that <laughs> we didn't want them to think of. And <laughs> we have to change it. Uh, and vice versa. Sometimes we'll hear, I don't know, some objections repeatedly where, whereas, oh, yeah, we have to anticipate that in, in how we tell this story. So we learn a lot. But the other thing we're doing is we're minting champions of it. We're creating people who can say, hey, yeah, this really worked for me. And, you know, here's how it worked for me. And here's maybe how it's still not working for me, but we want to make it better. So that when we do get to a situation like, you know, there's going to be lots of things to be rolled out over the next year, like in the time frame you're talking about. So, for instance, like a sales kickoff where you might literally be rolling this out to the whole team or a marketing rollout where you're creating a new website and starting to build new content, a new editorial calendar. We want to have champions who can say, yeah, I used it and it worked, rather than just sort of showing up at the sales kickoff or showing up to the marketing team and saying, hey, this is the new story. Let's do it. <laughs> right. I think that's that's really very important. The details of you know how they're going to then take that and, and operationalize it, I, I think, are just very dependent on the company and, and their situation and their stage. Uh, and of course, I do support CEOs occasionally as they're doing it. So, you know, oh, we have a new website. Can we talk about how it's reflecting the narrative or here's our editorial calendar? 
How's that going to reflect it? Product leaders are telling me, this is really fascinating, telling me that the narrative becomes kind of their North Star for the product roadmap for how they're going to decide what to prioritize in the backlog. Yeah, I had one CEO. So his name is Carl Garski. I can say it because it's public that we work together. He was a VP of product at a company I worked with a few years ago. And initially he was like, well, why, why am I in these meetings about the narrative? Like, that sounds like a marketing thing. And by the end of it, he was like, wow, okay, this narrative is now, he, he's reached out to me and said like, yeah, this narrative is actually how now running my backlog. He then became the CEO of a company called Outer Labs. And almost immediately he decided like, yeah, let's build this for our team because it's going to be valuable for all these different pieces. The other challenging part, Andy, I can imagine is aligning the organization itself behind the new narrative. You know, you can get one or two people excited, but how do you get the entire organization aligned behind a new narrative? Because there are bound to be very different and very strongly held opinions across the org. What's your advice to CEOs on how should they really approach this? Well, this gets back to why I structure my engagements the way I do. When I tell CEOs, asking them to create that group that's going to support them in building the narrative, I ask them to balance two things. One is people who have the inputs to what, what this story should be. Also, the people who are just the most important to own it. So the people who are kind of seen in the organization as the champions of the company who you really want to have on board. And, you know, this can get very emotional <laughs> in some of the sessions that I'm in, you know, people that the narrative is really expressing, you know, who we're going to be and what we believe. And in order for it to be powerful, it has to leave. The hardest part is what we're going to leave out. Uh, so we're usually leaving out some real gems and darlings of some people in the org. And how do you get people okay with that? One of the things I've found is by, by having it be a little iterative with this group and the CEO, the group should be able to weigh in on, hey, what's what's wrong with this? So I often say like the first time the CEO presents like the draft. So CEO and I work on a draft of it and present it to the small team. And this is usually the low point of every engagement I do. Uh, and, and for the reasons I'm talking about. And the good news is this is where the team gets to weigh in on how it should change. And in my experience, like they're always right. Like the team is right about, you know, so then the CEO and I, but design, go back to the drawing board and, and rebuild it. And eventually we get to a place where the CEO can say to the leadership team, look, I've heard you and here's what I've changed to address, you know, almost all of your concerns. But th these concerns you mentioned, I'm not going to address and here's why. And I believe this. And I've never had it be the case where like someone said, okay, I'm leaving, um, you know, but, but really this is a point where I think the leadership team has to say to themselves, hey, okay, I was heard and uh, CEO made a decision and time for me to, to support that decision. You know, if I can't support that decision, well, maybe I have to leave or maybe I have to overthrow the CEO. <laughs> I've never had that happen, but I think that alignment among the leadership team is the key thing. And then, of course, there's like repeat of that process 
kind of as you ripple out from the leadership team. But if you have a leadership team on board and sales, you know, like I said, not just, hey, we believe in this story, but hey, it's actually working. Well, very hard for others to to stand in the way of that. Andy, before we end, I have to ask you, creating a category or, or a new narrative, you know, it's a fairly significant undertaking. While the payoff can be huge, it does take a lot of the CEO's bandwidth and a huge amount of effort on the marketing and the brand side, which is a scarce resource for many companies. From your experience, when does something like this make sense for a business to consider? Are there certain kinds of businesses that are more likely to see success, you know, in working towards a new narrative? Well, just in your question, you're saying that the narrative is just about marketing or, you know, on the marketing side. I think if that's the case, don't do it. You know, if you see it that way, where I'm seeing CEOs decide to invest in this and they're really happy they did is where they're seeing this more holistically as really the definition of strategy for the company. And like I said, the, the sweet spot for this can happen at different points. In general, what the teams that I work with have in common is they've already achieved success in some form or another. I don't know if you'd call it product market fit exactly, but they've got either that or they've got a sales pipeline that's that's growing. And one CEO put it really well. He said, you know, I feel like We've had a lot of success, but it's been due to the brute force of the founders. And there's this shift that he saw happening where suddenly he and his co-founders, they're not going to be in the room with every potential buyer anymore. There's this shift from just the founding team to, oh, we're hiring lots of salespeople. We're hiring lots of marketing. We're investing in product. Uh, people are going to be making product decisions that aren't us. Uh, we're recruiting lots of people and we may not be the ones interviewing them. All of these things, they start to realize, whoa, if we could get like very crystal clear about this narrative and it was powerful, that's going to improve the ROI of everything we do. That seems to be the point. Fascinating, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Great to talk with you, Adil and Kashi. Hey, that was our conversation with Andy Raskin. Thank you for joining us. And if you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to us. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all major podcast networks. Until our next episode, this is me, Adil Bandukwala. And Kaushik Satish, signing off for the Great Indian Marketing Show. Thank you.